Professional athletes are a weird and different case. There are runners who are running perfectly well with degenerative meniscus tears. Hey, Howard, how's it going? It's going great, Paul. How are you? I'm good. I was having a conversation with a very athletic and much younger friend of mine today, and we were talking about running and about generally being active. And he's having a bunch of issues with his back, which, which he says it was exacerbated by running. And then he, that set him off as soon as he said that. It would, then he went into, well, not only my back, but you probably know, knees are just destroyed by running. And he said, this is well known that we have uh, this pension with enough, with enough activity that you're going to all of a sudden start destroying your cartilage and meniscus and everything else. And I said, I texted him back. This was all by text. So I texted him back the paper you had sent me. And it was like he had fallen off the face of the planet. He just disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> so it's really funny how uh, it just, it comes up constantly. And I thought it's, it's just such an interesting area that maybe one way we could, we could start into it is talk about why, in your experience, why, why people feel like that must be the case. Is it just this mechanis- mechanistic analogy they make that I, I, I use my, my bike shocks too much and those break, I use my car brakes too much and those go bad, so knees must be the same? Is that the way that you, that you hear from patients what they're saying? Yes, and I do, but unfortunately, it's not only patients. I had a knee and had an episode of knee pain. I saw a good friend of mine, a sports guy, very well known, treats a professional team. I had something going on in the knee and he said, you really should stop running. You're going to ruin your knees. And I was flabbergasted. I mm-hmm. really didn't know how to, how to to answer him. So like any runner does, I just ignored him and (laughs) I was fine. So it's very easy to understand how patients can think this way uh, because parts wear out, gaskets and ball bearings, etc. So of course it makes sense that our joints would wear out, but we forget biology. We forget biology and don't you think it's also, I mean, knees are evolutionary sucky to use the technical term. I I just find like, (laughs) I'm I'm amazed if I don't do something, and this has been true from ten till today. Knees just hurt at weird moments, like all of a sudden it, your knee hurts, and then it stops hurting, or it clicks, and then it's fine again. Or and everyone, if you talk to almost anyone, they'll tell you the same thing that yeah, just episodes of knee pain for no apparent reason. And so it's not particularly surprising that people would draw this causal line and say, well, I was running and my knee hurt. Running must make my knee hurt. I should stop running. Correct. Uh, And they won't connect the dot to an injury that they had when they were 18. They'll say, yeah, I had a meniscus tear when I was 18. So, but that was fine. I got better. (laughs) So it must be the, the running that gave me the arthritis now. So maybe this is a good point to to do a, an audible footnote. How would you describe arthritis both in terms of its pathology and then what it actually looks like? if you're looking at what is it just to give people a sense so when we peer inside a joint let's use our little camera scope we see this incredibly smooth uh, glistening and relatively firm uh, white layer of tissue and that's hyaline cartilage it's a unique type of cartilage it's only found on the ends of our bones that oppose one another it's relatively thick. The, the thickness can vary depending on which bone and which joint. In the knee joint, it's actually thickest under the kneecap or patella. Mm. Right. So let's say it's a quarter inch thick, 
and again it's very firm as cartilage starts to degenerate and it degenerates because of a biological process we have hundreds of chemicals in our joint that nourish cartilage and we have some that we can start to make that are become toxic to cartilage so the cartilage will start to soften the moisture content will change fissures will start to develop some pieces can start to flake off or the cells within the cartilage can start to die these cells uh, secrete a matrix which bind the cells together uh, it's like putting chia seeds into a cup of milk and coming back and seeing the milk right. the next day right yeah, 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 yeah. so if those cells make less matrix or there are less cells to make the matrix then the cartilage starts to get thinner as the cartilage thins you now have osteoarthritis the earliest stages started when the moisture content etc changed and then you go through a number of structural changes you lose the cushioning power of the matrix and it just continues to go downhill from there so if i showed you uh, a 10 year old kid's knee the inside of you scoped it and then i showed you a 50 year old male or female's knee how surprised would you be to see what arthritic, osteoarthritic change in the 10-year-old's knee, uh, asymptomatic, I'm talking in both cases, and then in the 50-year-old's knee, how surprised would you be to see it in their respective knees? So I would anticipate seeing it in its earliest forms, at the minimum in a 50-year-old, and I would not expect to see any changes in uh, that of a otherwise normal 10-year-old. Right. So if you had to put together, a, I was trying to explain this to someone today, and I probably put it badly, but I said, if you think of a constellation of factors that might be, a, you know, predispose you to having osteoarthritic change in a joint, specifically the knee here, there's age, there's genetics, there's prior traumatic injury, and there's, want of a better word, say exercise usage. If you had to work with that constellation and feel free to introduce other variables if you'd like, how would you apportion responsibility, age, genetics, prior traumatic injury, and just activity? So it appears that that genetics has a very significant role uh, in the onset of osteoarthritic changes. Age is by far the number one cause, but that's probably due to a culmination of things. We know that metabolism is at play in the ideology of many of the chronic diseases that we suffer and ultimately will die from, mm -hmm. right? Well, why do some people live to 100 and others die at 60? Those 100-year-olds are dying of the same diseases. They just got a free pass until they were right. 98. Right. So there was something different in their metabolism. So we know that uric acid levels, the cholesterol levels, uh, blood sugar levels, all of these have tremendous effects on our body as a whole. And as I mentioned, there are a lot of compounds uh, and proteins and chemicals in the knee, uh, and they're going to be affected by your metabolism. Now, without a doubt, prior trauma has a huge role. If you have a meniscus tear, and if you lose a piece of that meniscus, you have changed the way that force or weight is distributed across that knee, and you're at very high risk of developing some arthritic change. Right. It may progress rapidly. It may not. It often doesn't. If we see someone who had uh, a meniscus removed in their 20s, 
we'll start to see uh, them present with arthritic changes in, in their 50s, although I'm sure the arthritis was already present in their late 20s or early 30s. Right. So I, I guess that's the key, though, right? It's the, 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 in, case of, in the case of the traumatic change, it's not so much that something, some inflammatory process is continuing. It's, it's in, I like to think of it, there's at least as much of a role for change in mechanics of what's actually happening inside of this hinge joint. So there are mechanical changes that take place, such as a meniscus tear, or let's say a fracture, or someone who's bow-legged, right? If you're bow-legged, all the force is going through the inside of your knee. It's going to wear down the cartilage on the inside of the knee and spare the cartilage on the lateral or the outside of your knee. But there are also non-mechanistic non issues. Once you have a hemarthrosis, blood in your joint, yeah. One hemarthrosis raises the risk of developing arthritis dramatically. So that's not causing any mechanical issue, right? There was no damage to the cartilage on your MRI, no yeah. fractures, but that blood in your joint is very noxious. So it just sets off this cascade of events and it changes this whole chemical milieu that's present in your joint and that will affect your cartilage homeostasis. Because and that's an inflammatory explanation, right? I mean, no pun yes, intended. But I mean, that's what's going on. So. That, that's what's going on. Does that suggest, just as a side note, before I get on to something non-geeky, does that suggest that if you actually do have some fluid in the joint, uh, whatever form, blood specifically, I suppose that aspirating it is a good idea? Uh, so you're trading off risks, right? If someone has a hemarthrosis, blood in their joint, there's a chance that it's clotted and very thick and we won't be able to get it out too easily. Uh, per and if they're actively bleeding, meaning they just tore their ACL and their knee is full of blood, then it's just going to reaccumulate as soon as we take the needle out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there is some evidence starting to emerge that perhaps a cortisone injection may alter that course of arthritic change brought on by hemarthrosis, but we're not quite sure. So on the blood topic, one of the things that was a revelation to me or when I was looking into this way back, many knee injuries was the idea that the, the knee, and specifically the meniscus, so not the knee broadly, but the meniscus, depending on location, I suppose, uh, where in the meniscus, isn't particularly well supplied with blood, so it has a tendency to do a pretty crap job of healing, depending on where, say, for example, you had a tear. And more broadly, do you think it's the case that one of the reasons why we have arthritic change in the knee in many cases, at least age-related, is that it doesn't do a particularly good job as it seeks for homeostasis, it doesn't do a good job of repairing itself in part because of vascularization. Does that make any sense? Yes, and it, it does. And to some degree, this isn't backed by research, so I can't say for sure, but cartilage is fed through the joint fluid. So the process of weight bearing pushes the joint fluid uh, into the cartilage surface. So whatever nourishment is in the joint fluid is going to get pushed into the cartilage. If there are changes there, changes in what form of foods or toxins are available, that's going to change uh, the makeup of the cartilage. Blood is not a friend to cartilage. So for some reason, our joints are protected from having blood in them for a reason. I have to imagine that's to try and maintain the health of the cartilage more so than the meniscus. 
Right, right, right. So there's a role, but it's probably, as you said, it's a bit equivocal, right? It goes either way a little bit. Correct. So this is, well, you and I were talking about this a couple of weeks ago, and I was really disappointed to read. One of one of my main views on all of this, and we'll come back to it towards the end, about the, the role of activity in osteoarthritis and should you be active or should you not or what should you do, was I, I ran into a paper, which I think I sent over to you. Uh, yeah, I did. And it was about how how the meniscus is essentially fully formed and really doesn't change very much, even under stress in, in terms of uh, actively growing and repairing itself almost from the age of, like, wasn't it the mid-20s or something like this? Right, which, correct. Which was a huge surprise to me because I'd always convinced myself that it wasn't just that you're, you're being active for the sake of being active, that it, there's actually, a, as you discussed, there's a, a role for weight-bearing, actually pushing nourishing fluid back into, say, for example, cartilage and meniscus. Does that, does that come as a surprise to you? It came as a surprise to me. What do I know? It was a, it was, it, did it surprise me? No. Did it, yeah. Was it upsetting? Of yeah. course. <laughs> right. But... Different problem. Yeah. You don't want to know that. <laughs> no. I want to think that we can repair anything and everything that ails us due to aging-related changes or these micro-accumulating issues that we get with our menisci. But that doesn't appear to be the case. But on the flip side, on something we're thinking about, does it matter, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we've yeah. learned so much about these degenerative or quote-unquote complex meniscus tears. And we know that they don't bother most people, even though people will assign the cause of their pain to that meniscus that showed up on the MRI, uh, a whole nother topic, of course. We know uh, that there are runners and marathoners and ultras and sprinters who are running perfectly well with these degenerative meniscus tears. Right. So right. perhaps yeah. it doesn't matter. Yeah. And, and as we'll come to, perhaps the side effects of being active or, or the benefits of being active are so much more important anyway. So who <laughs> getting hung up on whether or not they continue to, how they nourish and repair themselves over time turns out to maybe be less important. So on the, the argument that people will make, and maybe we don't have good data on this, and I, I haven't seen the studies, but fine, a little bit of activity is, is perfectly good, but you're constantly hearing about people who uh, oh, he was a former athlete or marathon runner and his knees are just shot. And the, I, was, the Premier League just started up again the other day and I was watching an interview with somebody uh, who's a former soccer player who whose knees, I think he's had total, and had knee replacements on both knees and one hip, I think. And the announcer made the, the casual illusion that this is obviously because of the amount of time they spent training, which plays back into this mechanistic explanation you're drawing a line between usage and 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 joint problems. Now again, professional athletes are a weird and different case, but that strikes me as a, a very suspect and naive explanation. And and it does play into some of the worst biases with respect to this this causal mechanistic overuse connection to osteoarthritis and potential joint replacement. Right. And you know, think of being one of the hundred million people who are watching that who right. might influence whether they play or have their children play. Right, no, you know, exactly. Yeah, you can't do a root cause analysis on that. There's very good chance that it was a genetic predisposition, and he was predestined to have it done maybe a few years later, maybe not, I don't know. 
And maybe um, and one of the, the arguments I made right after seeing this was that we have no idea what other injuries they had during the and how many LCL tears did they have? Well, what's the what, what was what's the status with respect to blood in the knee from other injuries? Maybe no ACL injury, but maybe a bunch of other small sprains. I mean, yep. it's you you watch enough soccer and you'll see players constantly going down and they're out for two weeks and they're back. It's not a surgical repair, but this is these are the sorts of things that lead to some of the of stress that we talked about already. I. I agree. I, I I would be upset if I ha- had a hemothrosis in terms of assessing my my future risk. Right. But we've both been extremely active. Luckily, I come from a line that have no joint replacements, so I'm not anticipating needing one. Uh, but but if you were play- even if you weren't needing one and you played at the highest level of professional sports. I just think that's such an edge case in terms of the the amount of micro trauma and other little little things that happen that eventually add up and lead to you know, potentially arthritic change or in the worst case joint replacement. So I have a very hard time with this stuff, and I wish I, for my own purposes, I wish people wouldn't say it because I think it leads people to believe these naive I th- things. Right. I I know the data on running far better than I do on soccer and other sports-related issues that lead to arthritic change in terms of chronic repetitive stress, not yeah. single acute injuries. Yeah. And there is a level at which running is probably counterproductive to the health of your cartilage and knee. I don't think anyone has adequately quantified what that is. Like the health benefit, the heart benefits of running, right? You exhaust them and ultimately reverse them if you run too much. This is, the, imagine... that, this is that dose response thing. And yes. quite honestly, pisses me off. <laughs> I just think that most people live in fantasy land when it comes to dose response and exercise. They think, oh, I got to be careful. I'm getting to the point where I'm going to be doing too much of this. Yeah, you're not. No, <laughs> no you're not. <laughs> You're not even close to that point, my friend. True, <laughs> uh, there are lots of people for whom that's the case, but you're not one of them. And I, 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 I was thinking of this the other day when I was, I was, I had uploaded some data from. I use a Garmin, and I was went up on, and I had done a relatively short run. It was like I don't know, eight k or something like five k or some stupid thing. And they give you this data that shows what you run the same or more than what percentage of other runners. And I, you know, this is a short distance. I was running further than 77% of other runners at five or whatever it was, 6K. And I thought, you know what? If this, is a do- if this is a dose response issue, we got a lot more dosing to do. <laughs> That's really funny. I used to use an HRV program. Uh, yeah. I'm sure you and I have discussed this. And when I first started to use it, I was in the top 75 or 80% of people with respect to my HRV. Yeah. And it caught on and was utilized by people all around the world. And I guess because of age and whatever, I filtered down to like the upper 25% top. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I stopped using it. <laughs> it was very unfortunate. Yeah. I just, I find that stuff really interesting. And the other problem, of course, is that, and we're seeing this right now, when you and I talked about it last week, that. And one of the side effects of this pandemic has been the number of people out running. And I don't hold out a lot of hope that many of the people I currently see running, well, I will see them continuing to run six months or a year from now. So yeah. that the people worried about overuse and dose response, bath, bathtub curves, I, I just think they're kidding themselves. Right. You know, uh... so, so let's jump across then to, there was a paper you sent me recently, where we were, which was talking exactly about this issue of 
osteoarthritic change and the knee. And it was really striking. Do you want to summarize it maybe in your own words? What, what would you think was the main takeaway from this? Sure. It, it was uh, a paper done, I think it was done in Boston, and they studied a bunch of middle-aged men. I think the mean age was around 50. They were not overweight, and they had a non-running cohort and a running cohort, and all of them had some degree of arthritic change. I think it was a 96 or 98-month study, and they had annual x-rays, and they looked for uh, worsening of arthritic change and how those runners uh, and non-runners felt at the end of the 96-month period. Long story short, fewer runners' knees arthritic changes progressed when compared to non-runners, and more runners felt better uh, about their knee health and activity levels at the end of the 96 months than non-runners. Which really, really strike because it goes right to the heart of this argument. Correct. I mean, it was a, it was a great study for me. I really enjoyed reading. <laughs> yeah. Well, we're all we're we're predisposed to enjoy those kinds of studies. So, so the critic, I'll give you one critical response that you that I saw, and it, is that there's a selection bias problem here. Obviously, is that it would yes. be the claim that the people who are running already have something genetically that predisposes them to being able to run because lots of people run a bit and then have all kinds of injuries. So that runners can continue to run with a mild to arthritic change in the knee shouldn't be particularly surprising because we've already selected for that by finding a group of people who are middle-aged and running. I understand that, but runners reach a threshold where it just hurts too much. It's not enjoyable and they're going to stop or they'll transition to something else. So yes, there obviously is room for bias here. I, I can see that and agree with that, but I'm still very much encouraged that 33 or 35% of runners felt better at the end of that 96 month period than, than the non runners. So Let's, which is a, I think, a really important point. So let's take that the next step. I mean, there are, and this is, I think, the cute, that was a, actually a terrible pun, the next step. That was, <laughs> strike that. The, the, the thing that, that I'm really struck by, and, and I forgot who's, whose line this is, but this idea that exercise is a magic, the only magic therapy we have for people, and running is one of the simplest ways to get out and do things. I don't have to wait for my gym to open. I don't have to, I don't have to have people to play on a court. I can just go do it. So, to the extent that it's a magic therapy, and to the extent that people can run without having to think about things like osteoarthritic change, that's not the only benefit, right? I mean, the, and you, you were making the point earlier that even if there was mild osteoarthritic change going on. And even if you could tie it to running, there are counterbalancing forces here. There are things that are preventative things that are going on in your body that are at least worth considering, right? Without a doubt. Exercise is you know, the magic bullet in terms of holding off uh, a chronic disease burden that's going to set us down a very predictable path to, to disability and demise. And... I have this discussion <laughs> 10 times a day in the office each week because I'm trying to help these people who feel that they need to alter their activity to save or spare their knee 
yet they don't realize that they at the same time would be increasing their risk of dementia, metabolic syndrome, heart disease, hypertension, stroke, and type 2 diabetes. <laughs> so I try to implore yeah. upon them, please don't stop running, or if you do, slow down, or if you have to walk, walk, run, bike, swim, whatever you need to do uh, to make you feel happy. By, by no means are you protecting your knee, and you want to live long enough to enjoy that protected knee anyway. So th I'm, that's, I think, one of the most striking things that I've seen in the, in the research around this is that even if you were to, to grant something that is clearly not true given the, the research we're seeing, that there is our osteoarthritic change from directly tiable to, to, tied to running independent of genetics, which clearly is not. There are so many counterbalancing, countervailing benefits that, and people don't want to think about it. I just find it really interesting because I bring this up all the time with people that they're like, oh, you're going running, you shouldn't be doing that because, 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 because. I said, listen, even if I believed that all of these changes talking about were actually going to happen, which, you know, my knees are the same age as I am. So if you look inside them, you're going to find all <laughs> kinds of wonky stuff, right? That's just the way it goes. But there's nothing really going on that prevents me from doing the things I want to do. And at the same time, there's this halo of other effects. I mean, we know that in particular, this example you point to of the, the link to dementia is really quite, it was very strong. Absolutely. I think they estimate that nearly a third of cases of dementia are preventable, right? I think they refer to it as type 3 diabetes. Right. It's a metabolism issue. It's a mitochondria issue. It's an energy transfer issue. So you can look at it the same vein as metabolic syndrome and diabetes and type 2 diabetes, of course, and many other chronic issues. And it, it but I, I fight the losing battle. It seems like I get through to people and then I see them two months later. How do you feel? Well, the knee doesn't hurt as much because I stopped running. <laughs> okay. Oh, dear. Uh, I don't know what to tell you. We have to find something else. Let's go. And that was the key to this paper. These runners all ran a self-selected distance and pace. Yeah. So I don't care if you can't be competitive. I don't care if you ran a 17-minute 5K. It's yeah. irrelevant. You're running to, to live longer and to see your grandkids. Yeah. Well, that's a that's a great note to end on. I, it's for more reasons than just than than just the obvious one, and and the the main criticism that people make that you're going to ruin the joint just doesn't turn out to be true. So, I think those both worth keep, both worth keeping in mind. I agree completely. People in the office, they're like, "Well, look at you. You're almost sixty. Uh, you're on no medications, and you're super thin." And I'm like, how do you think I got this way? Yeah, I right? I know. People act like there's something magic happening here. But if I had the same wizard as you did, Howard, I would be able to run too. No, there's no wizard. This is not a Gandalf thing. This is this is purely just me going out and doing stuff, right? So. I mean, maybe there's some genetic luck involved, okay? But the rest of it is work. The rest of it's work. And it's also, even if there was some genetic luck involved, my thing, my my point is generally that the vast preponderance of people have at least a, a significant fraction of the luck that I have here. This is not the case that somehow <laughs> I am not Killian Journey. I'm not running a Swiss Alps. Right. You know what I mean? Right. This is not the case. So my genetics actually don't favor me much at all. They just allow me to continue to do what I do, which I think is the case with most people. So anyway, well, thanks, right. Howard. Well, thanks, Paul. 
This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine or other professional healthcare services, including the giving of medical advice. No doctor-patient relationship is formed. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked from this podcast is at the user's own risk. The content of this podcast is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Users should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice for any medical condition they may have and should seek the assistance of their healthcare professionals for any such conditions. And we will not respond to requests for medical advice.